Reading from Genesis 3, verse 8 to 24. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The second reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 33. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. It's a wonderful passage you've had before us tonight, but it's also a sobering one. So let's pray for God's help. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again we ask for your spirit's help to discern the truth of your word. May you teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us, so that we might be built up and made complete and ready for every good work, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
What is wrong with our world? What is wrong with our world? Everyone has an answer to that question, some sort of an answer to the question of what it is that kind of plagues us uh, in this world in which we find ourselves living. And everyone, based on their answer to that question, everyone has the answer to the next question as well, has some idea of what we ought to do in order to fix it. Uh, So for some people, the problem is inequality, uh, inequality of opportunity, inequality of of wealth or inequality of, you know, um, uh, well, all sorts of different things. And, and what we need to do in our world is we need, to, we need to break down some of that inequality. We need to break down the, the massive divide that there is between rich and poor, between the haves and the have-nots, between the powerful and the not-powerful. Uh, we need to level the playing field, and that will create the kind of world in which we would want to live. For others, they would say, no, no, actually, it's, it's the government. That's the problem. Maybe you weren't happy with the results of the last election. And maybe the person who is in power needs to change. Or maybe just the way that we run our political system needs to change. And uh, maybe we need to, to take some power away from special interest groups or uh, we need to change the way our political parties are financed. So maybe government is somehow the problem. And if we could just change that, if we could just tweak that, uh, then we could have the kind of world that we desire. Or perhaps the problem is education. If only we educated people in the right things in the right ways, at the right times, well, then they would make right choices, wouldn't they? Uh, Then we could have the kind of world that we truly want. Everyone has some sort of an answer to that question, what is wrong with the world? Uh, And with that diagnosis comes their idea for a cure. But the problem is, what happens if you've got the diagnosis wrong? You might have seen the symptoms, you might have seen the problem. I think we can all see some of the problems in our world. But maybe you've misunderstood the cause. And if you've misunderstood the cause, well then whatever you think the cure is, you'll have it wrong. And in fact, maybe your version of the cure might actually contribute to the problem. And so this is all significant because what we have here in Genesis chapter 3 is we have a description of the problem. In fact, we have a description of the problem that I think is matchless. I think it's about the best description of the problems of our world that you will ever find. But we also have the diagnosis. We also have the cause, the root problem of what is going on in our world today. And and anyone whose understanding of our world or anyone whose understanding of the problems that our world faces who doesn't take Genesis chapter 3 and include it in their thinking, well, they will have misunderstood our world. They will have misunderstood history. They will have misunderstood the cure. And in fact, rather than being a help to our world and its problems, they are in very great danger of contributing to the problems of our world. And so this is a very, very important chapter to get our minds around tonight. So there's four things that I want to talk to us about very quickly. First of all, I do want to describe the symptoms of our world in the way that Genesis 3 does. And I want, so I want to talk to you about the constant fight with evil, friction within the family, frustration at work, and a fractured relationship with God. And I worked very hard to get you four Fs. Uh, and then I want to talk more importantly about the diagnosis, the cause, why our world is the way that it is. That's what I want to talk to you about tonight. It's all there in the outline that you got as you came in and it would really help to keep your Bibles open in Genesis chapter 3. 
First of all then, our first symptom, a constant fight with evil. Come to verses 14 and 15, would you, with me? So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, who is this serpent who has caused so much damage with his lies? Well, it's not until the very end of the Bible in Revelation 12 and then in Revelation 20 that his true identity is revealed to us. That the serpent has always been none other than Satan. None other than he who has been our accuser, the, the devil himself. He is a supernatural and personal force for evil in our world. And his origin is mysterious. Uh, he has, like he's presented in Genesis, he has no backstory. His place is left unexplained. For to explain him would be to legitimize him or to even come to accept him. But instead, Satan always remains as he is in the garden, an intruder, an unwelcome guest, an enemy to be defeated, not a force to be explained or for us to grow comfortable with. But now, because of humanity's rebellion, we're told in verse 15, there will be a constant fight with evil, a constant fight between the offspring of Eve, the whole human race, and Satan. And this explains our complete inability to eradicate evil in our world, no matter how hard we try. Whilst the serpent, while Satan is still at work, whilst he's still whispering his lies in our world, we will always do battle with evil. And even with the very best of intentions, it will always be kind of one step forward and then two steps back. Any gains in one generation will be lost in the next. Evil will always harass and harry the human race, according to Genesis chapter 3. But Satan is not a cartoon character. He's not wielding a pitchfork and with horns and a, and a red suit. Satan is not to be underestimated. He is a powerful and purposeful force for evil. But he's also not to be overestimated either. The complete arsenal that he has at his disposal has already been revealed. His only weapon is to lie. That's his singular tool. He has nothing else. And the only power that he has is the power that we give him when we believe his lies. He has nothing more than that. That's, that's all that he has. And so Satan is like a prowling lion looking for those whom he might devour, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And yet at the same time, James chapter 4, verse 7, resist him and he will flee from you. He'll run away from you. You've taken away his only weapon when you choose not to believe his lies. But do not underestimate the power of those lies. Last week we saw just how easily the first man and the first woman believed all that Satan told them. And by those same lies, all humanity has fallen into the grasp of the serpent and there they remain as slaves until the light of Christ comes into their life. Now, the lies of Satan are powerful and they are so easily believed by so many 
because we want them to be true. The devil is the enemy of our soul and our lives will be marked by a constant battle with him. We see the fight sometimes on the grand scale, on the, on the pages of history, in the global warfare and the ideological clashes that happen in our world. But we see it in other ways too. We see it in the greed of the interest rate fixing bank. We see it as corporations shift record profits offshore whilst they keep their labourers in sweatshop conditions. We see it in royal commission after royal commission after royal commission. We see it in mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting with alarming regularity. And yet we can see it in our own lives as well, can't we? If we are but willing to admit it. A constant fight with evil is what Genesis chapter 3 says we will always face and we see it all around us every day. The second symptom then, friction in the family. Verse 16, to the woman God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. God gave us this wonderful command in in chapter 1 to spread out, to to fill the earth and to subdue it, to multiply, to have children. And yet the joy of of children, the, the joy of multiplying is marred by the pain and the anguish and the risk of childbirth. And the memory never really passes. Pregnancy and childbirth will now become a risky experience, says God. Uh, Up until about 70 or 80 years ago, the mortality rate for mothers in childbirth sat somewhere between 5 and 20%. And that meant that without contraception, having sex was like playing Russian roulette. There was a measurable probability that sex could end in death nine months later. And thankfully, that's not the case anymore, although in many places in our world, it still is. But similarly, the delight at the relationship between the man and the woman is tainted now. Uh, It's it's not the wonderful picture of Genesis chapter 2 that we spoke about a number of weeks ago. Uh, Now we're told that the desire of the woman will be for her husband. Uh, Now that desire could be a a sexual desire. But in Genesis chapter 4, sin will crouch at the door of Cain and it will desire to control him. Sin will desire to master him, and he, in turn, must master sin. And it seems to be the same way here. Women will somehow have this desire now to to control their husbands, to rule over them. Like when Eve ruled over Adam earlier in the chapter and gave him the fruit to eat. And this seems to be the beginning of the battle of the sexes, and yet God says she will lose. She will lose. He will rule over her. But not as God intended. Not with love and kindness and gentleness and goodness. No, instead, he will rule over her, perhaps even violently. And generally speaking, this is just how it does work in our world. Generally speaking, no matter the strides forward that we seem to have made, things just seem to work out better for the men. It's easy to see the domination and the control of men in some cultures. In some cultures, the woman is expected to dress head to toe, to walk a a few paces behind her husband and be ready to come at the click of his fingers. 
It's easy to see men ruling there. But how different is it in our culture and in our society? How different is it when women are are sprayed across our advertising wearing no clothes at all? Their nakedness for all to see. They're just a piece of flesh, again, for men to enjoy and for men to dominate. And even now, Hollywood, that that, that very institution that's sold to so many people, to so many women, uh, the the notion of the ideal and perfect relationship, the, the, the romantic comedy, the happily ever after story, well, now even Hollywood has revealed its seedy underbelly of the exploitation and the domination of women. And what's been done about it? Well, a few people lost their careers after a lifetime of massive success and wealth and power. And yet now we all seem to just have forgotten about it and imagine that somehow the same thing isn't happening all over again when we know it is. And even when marriages do break down, as sad and as awful as that is, it's been repeatedly shown in study after study after study that five years after a divorce, it's always the man who's doing better. It's always him who's doing better financially, socially, in their career. They're much more likely to have found a new partner. Somehow, always, in our world, the men seem to do better. Now, in this world, there is, according to God, there is friction in the family. There is a battle between the sexes. It's real. And even though men generally win this battle, in reality, both are losers when you compare it to the goodness and the wonderfulness of the relationship that they had back in Genesis chapter 2. It's just that the woman has more to lose, just as Genesis chapter 3 says. Fight with evil, friction in the family, but now also frustration. Frustration at work. Humanity must continue to work, but now it will be frustrated. Man rebelled against God, and so now the very ground itself will rebel against us and rebel against our rule. And so in verse 17, to to Adam, God says, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. In Genesis chapter 3, a new word is used to describe work, and that word is toil. And the toil of Genesis chapter 3 is very different to the work of Genesis chapter 2. Work was painless, but toil is painful. Work was creative, but toil is repetitive. Work is joyful and is fulfilling, it's meaningful, but toil is frustrating and stressful and difficult. And toil is necessary. If you do not toil, you will not eat, says the Lord God. And that's a new idea. When they were in the garden, all Adam and Eve had to do was reach out their hand and there was a wonderful, beautiful, fruit-giving tree from which they could eat. But now they must toil in order to survive. 
And yes, there are still moments in our world where we will experience work as work, as wonderful, as fulfilling, as, as creative, where we can do genuine good for other people. And those moments are wonderful. But for most people in most places and at most times, what we will experience is the toil and the difficulty and frustration of work. Printers jam. Computers crash. There are annoying co-workers, unrealistic bosses, demanding clients, office politics. The weeds are everywhere. In our country, when do most suicides occur? Sunday night and Monday morning before work. In our country, when do most heart attacks occur? Friday night after the adrenaline kind of passes through your system and your body is reminded just how broken by its toil it truly is. Most people will resent the over 100,000 hours of their life that their paid jobs will take. And then you come home and the unpaid work begins. Toil. The frustration of work. That's... That's what we will feel. That's what we do feel. And ultimately, death renders everything futile. For no matter what we achieve in life, eventually, like us, it will become nothing more than dust. A fight with evil, friction in the family, frustration at work. But finally, worst of all, this is a world that is marked by a fractured relationship with God. Adam and Eve are banished from God's garden paradise. Come to verse 22, would you? And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There's no way back. There's no way back into the garden now. Adam and Eve are exiled from God. They're exiled from his goodness and from his blessing. They're exiled from the perfect provision of the garden. They're even exiled from the tree of life. And the final punishment that will now overtake them is death. And death is the ultimate falling into darkness. Death is the ultimate end of all relationships, particularly our relationship with God. And the wages of sin are death. God said that they would die and now they will. A little more every day until they are nothing more than the dust from which they came. A fight with evil, friction in the family, frustration in work, and now even a fractured relationship with God, cut off from our Maker. This is the descriptive analysis of our world, according to Genesis chapter 4. This is what is wrong. And I don't think you would ever find a better description of what is wrong with our world than what Genesis chapter 3 describes for us. But these are just the symptoms. 
What's the cause? What's the diagnosis? What's the real problem going on in our world today? Why is our world like this? And four times we're told why in this passage. Four times we're told, that is, four times God speaks and God says, verse 15, I will. Verse 16, I will. Verse 17, to Adam he says, because you ate, I will curse the ground. Verses 23 and 24, God drives the man and the woman out of the, of the garden. See, why is our world the way that it is today? Well, there are two reasons. One is because we have rebelled against our Creator. We have chosen deliberately to reject God's loving rule. We have chosen to take the train off the tracks because of our wicked rebellion. But that on its own is not enough. Because to that God says, because you, I will. The world is the way that it is because of God. Because of how he has responded to our sin because of how he has responded to our rejection of him, because God has judged us and has judged our worlds and punishes us for our rebellion against him. And four times that is made clear in this passage. God has acted in judgment to curse. The serpent is cursed, the man and the woman are cursed, the ground is cursed, and now they're exiled to live in a cursed world. And now they will experience God's judgment day by day by day until they ultimately experience it in death. Now what I'm saying is this, that whilst there is no direct connection between the activities of an individual and let's say, for example, a tsunami in in Southeast Asia, ultimately the events of any tsunami, ultimately the events of any natural disaster, of any suffering in our world has two causes that are both true at exactly the same time. One is our wickedness, our rebellion against our God, that we should say to Him that we could do this without Him, that we can rule without Him. And the other is God. He's just, He's slow, He's settled, He's right anger and judgment against us. So that God has deliberately and intentionally and thoughtfully acted and cursed on Satan, so that we will always be at war with him, we will always be conscious of our sin and failure. And God has deliberately and thoughtfully and intentionally acted on Eve, so that the man and the woman will never have that perfect relationship that they had ever again. There will always be friction There will always be a wrestle for control and kind and loving oneness will now too often end in domination. And even the beautiful act of childbearing is painful and makes a woman even more vulnerable to the man in her life. And God has deliberately and intentionally and thoughtfully cursed the ground so that now our work will never be completely satisfying and never be completely fulfilling. It will always be hard and frustrating There is a God dimension to the brokenness of our world. Uh, Last week I said that this world is broken and we are the problem and so we can't fix it. 
And the truth is, if somehow we could, even if somehow we, we, we managed to kind of fix ourselves and, and we somehow managed to kind of get everything together and, and work really hard, we still couldn't fix our world because God has deliberately broken it. We don't live in the garden anymore. We don't live in the perfect place of God anymore. We live east of Eden in his cursed world where he has put the rebels and the criminals who have rejected him. And worse still, all of these things are just the indicators that this is a world that is under judgment and that this judgment that is coming is far worse than anything we have already experienced. Like the first chill of autumn is the reminder that winter is coming. So to every judgment of God is a warning of the complete and final judgment of God that is to come. And how does Jesus describe the earthquake and the famine and war in Matthew chapter 24 as the birth pangs? As the birth pangs, as just the first contractions, stage one labor of God's final judgment. And so God exiles Adam and Eve out of the garden and into this fallen world with the full daily reminder that a day is coming where they would meet with God once again, face to face, in final judgment. And so too we live in a world where we're faced with that reminder every single day. Go home tonight. Turn the television on. Once again, see the wickedness of this world. What should it tell you? Judgment is coming. Have a silly argument with your, with your spouse tomorrow, some petty squabble, some disagreement. What should that remind you? Judgment is coming. Go to work. Go to uni. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's difficult. I'm facing exams. It's stressful. What should that remind you? Judgment is coming. No, our world is a fallen world now, under the judgment of God, and final judgment is coming. Fighting, friction, frustration, fracture, that is our world. That's the diagnosis of our world under sin and under the judgment of God and facing final judgment. And so is there any hope at all? Is there any answer to this at all? Is there any hope for a solution and hope for a cure? And mercifully, the answer is yes, there is. God, in his mercy, even as he speaks his judgment, he cannot help but also show his love and his grace and his mercy. And so there are little hints sprinkled throughout this chapter. In verse 9, God does come to the man and the woman and he gives them an opportunity to, to confess. He gives them an opportunity to repent, to take responsibility, to acknowledge what they've done wrong, an opportunity that sadly they do not take. In verse 21, God makes garments of skin for the man and for the woman. Now their, their fig leaf coverings are so necessary and yet so inadequate. And so God, in His mercy, gives them something better. And some have even seen this as the first hint of animal sacrifice to cover over sin. 
But it's deeper than that, isn't it? The judgment of God, every judgment of God is a warning of the final judgment that is to come. And the final judgment could have come right then and there. This could have been the absolute end of the story and even the end of the entire human race at the end of Genesis chapter 3. And yet, as I'm sure you've noticed, the Bible goes on for quite some time yet. It's a rather long book, isn't it? Because God, in His mercy, He pauses. He waits. God, in the slowness of His anger, does not bring the final judgment there and then. And it's a long pause. It's a pause that's lasted all of human history to this day. And yet it is just a pause. A pause so that perhaps there's time for something to be done. A pause into which sometimes there might somehow be something that can happen, something that could happen that, that can do something about this mess. That somehow someone might come to, to deal with the problem of sin, to deal with our rebellion, to defeat our enemy, Satan. And that someone might even be able to do something about the right and just anger of God towards us in our sin. Now, the judgment of God does not, does not fall straight away. There's hope. There is, there is this wonderful pause. And in this pause, God has not taken away everything good from our worlds. No, don't, don't mishear me. There are still wonderful good things in this world. There are still wonderful relationships to be had. There is still much good to be done in our world through our work. Uh, it's just that now all of the good is mixed together with the bad. And you can't have one without the other, which leaves us all longing for something better. Leaves us all with a deep down desire and feeling that this world isn't right and that something must be done and, and it should be better. And that feeling is meant to drive us back to God and back to His Word to search for hope. And so where would that hope be found? Well, someone once shared with me a, a wonderful picture that I wanted to share with you and it's coming up on the screen now behind us, assuming we haven't lost the laptop again. Uh, it's called Mary Consoles Eve and it's a wonderful picture. After the fall, in the moment of Eve's shame and the announcement of the curse that she would bear, Eve could not have imagined redemption beyond the curse. God proclaimed that Eve would experience great suffering in childbearing and that the coils of Satan would only tighten around her children, not loosen. And the next generation would not bring redemption, but further suffering and agony for Adam and for Eve. Where and when would redemption, where and when would the removal of the curse be found? And Eve could not have seen that she was the key. Where would hope be found? Well, there would be one who would come from Eve, from her childbearing, who would crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent struck his heel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Salvation was not going to come through the work of man. The work of man will not find for us a way back into God's garden paradise. The work of man will not build for us a new garden paradise out here in our cursed exile. 
Salvation would not come through the work of man, but through the childbearing of Eve. For generation after generation, through risk and peril and pain, woman after woman after woman. And so often that that great chain of childbearing in the Scriptures is so fragile. There are so many barren women in the Bible. Until an angel, Gabriel, visited a virgin called Mary and said, Rejoice, favoured one, for the Lord has turned his face towards you. The Lord has looked in favour upon you and you will have a son and his name will be Jesus. And he will crush the serpent, even though he will be fatally wounded in the process. He will defeat the enemy. He will pay for sin. He will end the curse. He will turn aside God's wrath at rebellion. He will end death and bring resurrection and everlasting life. He will rule in God's image and his kingdom will have no end. And when you come to him and bow to him as king and trust him as saviour, then he is the one who will lead you back into the garden, back to God, to live once again with him and be with him, not just now, but forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this passage is a sobering reminder of the fallenness of our world. A fallenness we see, a fallenness we feel, a fallenness that hurts us, that scars us, and that deep down we know the truth of. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger and rich in love. We thank you for the pause, the pause between Genesis chapter 3 and the final judgment, a pause into which you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our King and to be our Saviour. Lord, whoever we are tonight, we pray that we would not leave here without coming to Jesus and knowing that he is the solution. He is your answer to all the problems of this world and of our lives. And most importantly, he is the solution to the problem of our relationship with you. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be those who bow to him as king and trust him as saviour so that he might lead us home.